Hello everyone, this is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist. I'd like to welcome you to a special five-part series on working with monitors. This podcast series is sponsored by Affiliated Monitors. A word about Affiliated Monitors. Founded in 2004, Affiliated Monitors provides professional, independent integrity monitoring and ethics and compliance assessments nationally and internationally and across all industries. With its knowledge of effective ethics and compliance programs, Affiliated Monitors is respected for its work as a corporate monitor on matters ranging from multinational corporations to small and mid-sized companies and even individuals. Having served in over 700 monitorships, no one has more experience as an independent monitor than the team at Affiliated Monitors. In this podcast series, I'm joined by Don Stern, the Managing Director of Corporate Monitoring and Consulting Services at Affiliated Monitors. We're going to take a look at concerns and fears people have of working with monitors, what the positive aspects of working with monitors are, how monitors go about their jobs, the regulators' use of monitors, both in civil and criminal matters, and finally, how attorneys use monitors to resolve white-collar and other matters. I know you will find it to be a very interesting series going forward. This series, Working with Monitors, is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back for another episode in my five-part series on Working with Monitors. This week, I've been visiting with Don Stern, the Managing Director of Corporate Monitors and Consulting Services at Affiliated Monitors. Today, I want to take up uh, really a couple of topics. The first one is regulators using monitors, and then the second is monitoring probationary conditions. Don, I think most of my listeners are going to be well-versed or at least are familiar with the Department of Justice uh, employing or assigning a monitor after deferred prosecution agreement of an FCPA uh, uh, enforcement action, but that is really just a very small part of the work of monitors and the work of affiliated monitors. I was wondering if you might be able to tell us a little bit about how it's just not limited to the Department of Justice. Sure, you know, in, in in many instances, as you as you allude to, um, the the at least one of the goals of the monitorship, uh, in a broad sense, is to look at the compliance and ethics program, kind of soup to nuts that that a company may have, and often, you know, we have sometimes uh, met with companies and with government agencies in that context, and the the message that comes through is, you know, we we want you to take a broad look here that but in the but in 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 a different context it's it's much different and i'll give you a couple of examples um you know we're doing we're serving it's not called a monitor but it's we sort of serve in that role for the federal communications commission um overseeing the set of conditions that were imposed by the fcc when it approved the at&t direct tv merger so at&t didn't do anything wrong they acquired and merged with DirecTV, but but the the FCC, at least at that point, when the when the merger was approved, was concerned about certain uh, let's call it anti-competitive issues. The upshot of that was <clears throat> there was an order from the FCC, agreed to essentially by by the by AT and T, that AT and T would do certain things over a four-year period, set conditions applied for four years, and then not do other things. So, in some cases, they were told. And agreed. Well, you got to do this. And in other cases, they were they were told you can't do these other things. And um, I think really it may have been the first time that the FCC had used a monitor in, in in that way. They decided 
that they really didn't have the resources to to do it and and um on a day-to-day basis, week-to-week basis. So we we got the, the task. We were appointed as the, and it's called the independent compliance officer. So it's it's not a monitorship. And our job is not to look at the general compliance program of AT&T or the general ethical program of AT&T. We don't look at their bribery and corruption controls. It's, it's just much different than, let's say, a, an FCPA matter. We have very specific things that we look at. And I'll give you an example. One of the things that, one of the conditions was that they had to offer a discounted broadband service to certain low-income households around, in the footprint where AT&T operates. I think it's the 17 or some states that AT&T operates around the U.S. And the FCC was concerned about the so-called digital divide. They wanted access to broadband for low-income families, particularly for, for school kids. So we assessed that you know, we, we look at the marketing program on uh, by AT&T. We look at their efforts to uh, provide discounted broadband to low-income households. Uh, and by the way, they've been very successful in, in doing so. So it, it's just different. And, and then I'll give you another example. We are um, doing some work for the, um, for the state attorney general in Rhode Island where there are the so-called hospital conversions. You take a, a, a not-for-profit hospital, it's purchased by a for-profit chain, um, sometimes um, with venture capital money behind it. And the state attorney general in most states will have to approve that transfer of assets from charitable assets to for-profit assets. And in the course of doing so, <clears throat> typically the state attorney general will apply certain conditions. You've got to recruit physicians. You have to keep the mental health services open. You have to spend X millions of dollars on new equipment. So again, it's not focus on uh, the big picture compliance and ethics. We have very specific metrics that we are asked to look at, and, and that's what we do. I, I think it's, it's, a, it, it's increasingly being used by government agencies as a way of not only having confidence that their regulatory decisions are being followed. But frankly, it provides some comfort and confidence, I, I would think, to the public, knowing that it's not just um, we've approved what you can do or, or, or told you what you cannot do, but we've got somebody who's going to kind of look over your shoulder for a period of time, work with you, and then assure not only the government agency but the public, but it's actually happening. So it really seems to me that's a way for the government to extend its reach, both in terms of uh, uh, time, so you're lengthening out the time that you have true government oversight, but almost in terms of a, a geographic scope, because uh, you guys can can go to the company, participate, uh, do many of the techniques you've talked about in earlier episodes, focus group meetings, review documents, talk to senior management. So it, it really seems a, a way for a cost-effective way for federal, state, and even local governments to uh, extend out their reach. Sure. And, and of course, it's, to one extent, from the government agency's point of view, it's essentially it's, it's off budget because we, you know, we, we get paid by the company. So we, we may have, a, we do have an obligation to report to the government agency and, and to be independent, but, you know, they would have to hire, you know, uh, uh, extra employees. They have to go back to their state legislature and basically, in some cases, hire extra employees, which is not typically in the cards these days, given the 
the, the straits in which most you know government budgets are. So it's a yeah, it's a way of expanding their reach and and also um, building some some confidence that their regulatory process uh, is working. Uh, I think that's important. I think there's a certain amount of cynicism that that people have about government agencies. You know, the companies will come in and they'll promise this and they'll promise that. Um, there's a big hearing. There's a big you know, media thing, et cetera. Then, and then the government agency moves on. And, and the question sometimes is, well, did that really work? Did, did those things that we asked the company to do or the hospital to do, are they really doing it? So that's, again, it's a confidence builder, I think, in the, in the process. So uh, it really struck me in listening to you, uh, Don, that almost any issue – uh, can be ripe for having someone like yourself, like affiliated monitors, a truly independent come in and not only oversee, but actually test compliance, whether it be obviously a uh, an enforcement agreement, a deferred prosecution agreement, or other settlement document. But uh, you specifically talked about M&A transactions, but even down to IP rights or licensing agreements uh, between parties in a contract. Yeah, absolutely. So I've, I've often been... <clears throat> surprised the the extent to which, let's say, in, a, in an M and A context, that the acquiring company will spend substantial sums of money and time scrubbing the the books, you know, looking at the the audited statements, you know, talking to people, doing some HR review to to find out, you know, kind of what the quality of the employees are, et cetera. But yet, when it comes to do they have a good compliance program? Good ethical and compliance program. They they tend to overlook that, even though once they acquire the company, they're going to own and wear whatever problems are there. I mean, you know, if a year or two years from now there's a government investigation and they own this new company, they're going to own that that problem. Um, but we've also seen it, as you said, in 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 the licensing uh, area, where uh, again, and, and and this is not done as part of a government settlement. It's not done. Oh, even where anybody knows about it, we, we've come in, for example, and look at and just look at the at the system of controls that co- that a company might have to protect their IP. Um, they've often done a very very good job, but you know, there's there's no I don't think there's any substitute by for having somebody independent of the company with some expertise and common sense and and practicality coming in and and looking at how how are you doing. You don't have to do this all the time. It isn't something you need to do even every year. But every once in a while, have somebody come in and and take a hard look at how you're doing and then reporting back internally through the company. And if it's great, I think it's money well spent because you've, you've established that you've got a good program. And if you need to fine-tune your program in certain ways, here again, I think that's all to the good. So, Don, unfortunately, we're near the end of our time, but on this episode, I've been visiting with Don Stern about some of the, uh, if if not non-traditional, uh, certainly innovative ways to use an independent monitor, monitor and why it benefits uh, regulators, state uh, officials, uh, down to local officials, and uh, companies who are engaged in uh, regular and ordinary M&A transactions or even licensing agreements. Uh, tomorrow, we're going to conclude our five-part series with uh, the topic of near and dear to my heart as a lawyer, attorneys using monitors to resolve white-collar 
uh, or other matters. And certainly drawing upon your expertise, Don, as a former uh, AUSA uh, and that perspective. So I greatly look forward uh, to that conversation. Thank you. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of my special five-part series on working with monitors, sponsored by Affiliated Monitors, Inc. If you have any questions of Don, you can reach him at don.stern at affiliatedmonitors.com. Hope you will listen for our next episode on working with monitors. This special series, Working with Monitors, is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.